God will take you where you have not intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. God will take you where you have not intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. Paul Tripp said those words and they have stuck to my ribs ever since I heard them. And I believe it with all of my heart. God will take you where you have not intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. I 100% believe that with all of my heart. And I 100% hate that with all of my heart. I'm just being honest. Isn't that what you're looking for in a preacher? Honesty? I'm just being honest with you this morning. I don't like suffering. I don't like trials. I don't like that God takes me places where I have not intended to go in order to produce in me what I could not achieve on my own. I want my life to be easy. I want Jesus to give me everything that I want, everything that I ask for. Wouldn't it be great if you could just take a sanctification pill in the morning and you would slowly be conformed to the image of Christ all day long? Wouldn't that be awesome? Sanctification pills? How have we not come up with that yet? Somebody needs to invent that. I'd be a junkie if we had sanctification pills. I'd be strung out because I'm a sinner and I sin all the time and I need help. But wouldn't it be great if God said, just take two sanctification pills and call me in the morning? It would be great, wouldn't it? Take two sanctification pills before bed, wake up, read Bible, pray, be made more like Jesus. That's what I want. But I know that the Bible teaches that there is a level of growth and godliness that cannot be achieved only through Bible reading. I know from reading God's word that there is a level of growth and godliness that cannot be achieved only by prayer. I know that there is a level of growth and godliness that cannot be achieved only through fellowship. I know that there is a level of growth and godliness that can only be achieved through suffering, through hardships, through trials, through being put in difficult situations, having to deal with difficult people. Take two sanctification pills before bed. Wake up, read Bible, pray, be made more like Jesus. That's my dream Christian life right there. But that's not how Christianity works. That's not how discipleship works. That's not how sanctification works. Unfortunately, if we can use that word, unfortunately, the process of sanctification, the slow, slow, slow process of sanctification, the slow process of becoming more and more like Jesus, unfortunately, it is painful. It hurts. There's discomfort. There's irritation. There are aches and pains and tenderness. In sanctification, all of your spiritual nerve endings are on fire. 
In sanctification, God reveals all of your idols. He burns up all of your idols. In sanctification, God reveals all the things that you cling to, all the idols that you cling to in order to find satisfaction. In sanctification, God reveals all the things that we are trusting in. And he often uses trials and hardships and suffering to expose us. And he often puts us in difficult situations with difficult people in order to expose us. And you may not know this, but you're probably a difficult person for somebody else. I know you think you are awesome and that people think you walk on water, but you know what? The reality is you are a difficult person that God has brought into somebody else's life in order to do work in their heart. Did you know that when somebody else reads all those one another passages in Scripture, love one another, forgive one another, bear with one another, did you know that when they read those verses, they think of you? You come to mind in their quiet time. You are a difficult person for somebody. That's humbling. God often uses trials and hardships and suffering and difficult people in our lives to expose us. It's true, God will take you where you have not intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. God will take you where you have not intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. And that's what we'll see in Mark chapter 6 today. So turn in your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 6. Jesus will purposely send the disciples into a storm in order for them to see you once again who he is. Now, the disciples still don't get it. They're not connecting the dots about who Jesus is. They're not getting it. They don't truly understand that Jesus is the Messiah that the Old Testament scriptures were pointing towards. Having just witnessed Jesus feed 5,000 plus people with five tortillas and two fish, you'd think that the disciples would have been a little further along in their understanding That Jesus is able to meet and to exceed all of their needs. You'd think that they get it by this point. But what Mark will show us is that when Jesus turns self-reliant, independent, slow to learn, spiritual orphans into trusting sons, he doesn't do it all in one meal. A single meal does not a complete disciple make. Even when that single meal, the feeding of the 5,000, was expressly designed to show them Jesus' love, power, provision, and trustworthiness as the good shepherd. That's what we saw last week in Mark. One miraculous meal later, and the disciples still don't get it. Sure, they have witnessed extraordinary miracles so far in Mark's gospel, but they don't really get it yet. They will eventually get it, but not yet. And what Jesus will say to them in our passage today, he says to you right now, because if you're honest, you're just like the disciples. You're slow to learn. You just as quickly turn back into a spiritual orphan 
and you forget that you have a Father in heaven who can meet all of your needs. You and me, we're just like the disciples. And what Jesus says to them as he's standing on water outside of their boat, he says to you and to me today, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Whatever it is that you are going through right now, whatever is happening in your life where you have slipped into thinking like a spiritual orphan that your heavenly Father does not care about you, whatever idol that you're clinging to and trusting in right now, Jesus says to you today, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And that might be just what you need to hear this morning. And just what you will need to remind yourself of sometime next week. So look at Mark chapter 6 beginning in verse 45 and hear the word of the Lord. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida where he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came... The boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So immediately after Jesus feeds the 5,000, he sends the disciples across the Sea of Galilee to the village of Bethsaida, and he dismisses the crowd, and he goes up on a mountain to pray. And as the disciples start rowing and the wind picks up, they end up getting stuck in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus is up on this mountain praying, and there's still enough light out that Mark says he can see them, and they aren't going anywhere. The Greek in verse 48 is literally, they were tormented or they were tortured in their rowing. So these professional fishermen who know what they're doing in a boat, they're being tormented by this wind and this storm that is on the sea. They're rowing, but going nowhere. And Jesus just sits there and watches them and he prays. Notice, he doesn't intervene right away. He lets them row for quite a few hours. Get this about Jesus. He doesn't always intervene right away. Mark tells us in verse 48 that as they were stuck rowing and rowing and rowing and going nowhere, it was in the fourth watch of the night when Jesus finally came to their aid. The fourth watch of the night was sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. The Greek word for fourth watch literally means the time when Benji Magnus is often miserably wide awake and unable to go back to sleep. That's what that Greek word means. I experienced that Greek word this morning. So sometime after 3 a.m., Jesus walks out on the water to see them. And Mark tells us in verse 48 that he meant to pass by them. Well, what does this mean? Is Mark saying that Jesus wanted to pass by the disciples and go unnoticed, but he failed? I don't think so. If Jesus didn't want to be seen by them, he could have just stayed on the shore. could have stayed on the mountain praying. 
Jesus meant to pass by them so they could see him. And when he did pass by them, they saw him. Mark is not saying that Jesus meant to pass by them. He tried to pass by them, but he miserably failed. Mark is saying he meant to, on purpose, walk by them so they could see him walking on the water. But instead of seeing Jesus and being filled with faith, they are filled with fear. Jesus walked on water so they could see him, so they could be reminded that he is Yahweh, God incarnate. Remember what we saw back in chapter 4 of Mark. Jesus calmed the storm. He calmed the sea. In the Old Testament, the seas and the oceans were the place where evil lived and dwelled. The chaotic waters were a symbol of evil. The Israelites believed that only God could control the waters. And so Jesus purposely passed by the disciples so they would see him walking out on the water and be reminded of who he is. But instead of responding in faith, they are afraid. In fact, they think he is a ghost. The Greek word is phantasma. They saw Jesus calm the storm in chapter 4, but now he's walking on water. And so they think he's a ghost, and they start screaming. But notice that Mark tells us that immediately he spoke to them. They were scared when they saw Jesus, and he immediately speaks words of comfort to them. This is vintage Jesus right here. We see this all through the Gospels. He rushes in in order to calm our fears. This is vintage Jesus. And Jesus tells them, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. When Jesus says, it is I, it's the words ego eimi in Greek. It means I, I am. So Jesus is telling the disciples, I am, I am. In other words, he's saying, I am Yahweh. This is exactly what the Lord said to Moses when he revealed his glory to him in Exodus 3. Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moses wanted to know what to say to the Israelites if they asked Moses, who is it that has sent you to us to set us free? And the Lord told Moses, tell them that Yahweh sent you. Tell them I am sent you. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I am I am. I am Yahweh. I am God incarnate. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of Man. I am the Good Shepherd. I am the one all of the scriptures are pointing to. And then Mark remarkably tells us they still don't get it. Think about what has transpired so far in Mark's gospel. Jesus calmed the storm in chapter 4. He cast out over 5,600 demons out of that crazy man in a cemetery at night. He healed the woman with the issue of blood when she simply touched his clothes. He brought a little girl back from the dead. He fed up to fifteen to 20,000 people fish tacos with just five tortillas and two uh, uh, fish. And that's all that's just happened in the last couple of chapters of Mark. Not to mention everything that happened before that. The disciples have seen Jesus do all kinds of miracles. And yet Mark tells us in verse 52, And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. 
Within the last 10 hours, Jesus miraculously fed 15 to 20,000 people with just five tortillas and two fish, and they had 12 baskets left over. Remember from what we saw last week? What do the 12 baskets of leftovers mean? Jesus was trying to communicate to them that he is the Messiah, the good shepherd of the 12 tribes of Israel. He's the one that they were looking for. That's why there are 12 baskets of leftovers, because there were 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, I'm the Messiah. Get it? And Mark tells us that the disciples still don't get it. Even after Jesus hops in the boat with them here and calms the waters and says, Ego a me, it is I, I am, I am, I am Yahweh, the, the disciples still don't get it because Mark says their hearts were hardened. Think about what Mark is telling us. You can have truth stare you in the eye. You can have truth tickle you in the stomach. You can have truth punch you in the face. You can have truth pull your hair and still not get it. The disciples just saw Jesus prove that he's the good shepherd of Psalm 23 by feeding the 5,000 plus people. And now he walks on water. He calms and stills the storm. And they don't get it. And he tells them, I'm Yahweh. I am, I am, and they still don't get it. There's a man standing on water outside of their boat in the middle of this crazy storm claiming to be God, and they're like, huh? Huh? You can have truth stare you in the eye. You can have truth tickle you in the stomach. You can have truth punch you in the face. You can have truth pull your hair. And still not get it. That's how deep Adam's sin has affected humanity. That's how sinful we are. That's how desperately we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and to open our hearts. Now, lest we throw the disciples under the boat, we often don't get this either, right? How often do we go through trials and go through suffering and we complain or we doubt or fear grips our heart or we worry? All of the time, right? Every of the times. So the disciples cried out, ghost, phantasma. And Jesus replied with, I'm Yahweh. They didn't get it. Think about this. Jesus says, take heart. And then Mark tells us, their hearts were hardened. How in the world are these two sentences in the same paragraph? You expect Mark to say, their hearts were comforted. Their hearts were encouraged. Their hearts were calmed. But no, Mark says their hearts were hardened. How does one's heart get hardened like this? Bitterness. Anger. Perhaps they were bitter that Jesus sent them into the storm for now the second time. They've been rowing all night. They're tired. They're exhausted. They're angry. They don't want to be where God has placed them. They don't like their situation. They don't want to be where God has placed them. They don't like 
their situation. They want things to change. And I think they became bitter. And they see that Jesus has the power to stop the storm. And instead of worship, they became bitter. You sent us here, Jesus, and you could have stopped it. And you let us row all night long? Bitterness. Anger. If it wasn't for you, Jesus, we could be sleeping in that lush green grass we were sitting down in earlier today. That was a great spot to camp in, by the way. But you sent us across the sea. We've been rowing for hours because we did what you told us to do. They're bitter. They're angry. How often do we find ourselves where we are by providence, knowing that God has the power to change our circumstances, and he doesn't change our circumstances in the time and in the way that we want, and instead of worshiping, we get angry. How often do we find ourselves where we are by providence, by God's infinite wisdom, by his loving care, knowing he has the power to change our circumstance. And he doesn't change our circumstances in the time and in the way that we want. And instead of worshiping, we get angry. We become bitter. And our hearts begin to harden. Listen, if you are where you are in life and bitterness has been growing in your heart, and your heart is getting hardened by sin's deceitfulness, as the preacher of Hebrews says. If your heart this morning is getting hardened by sin's deceitfulness, listen to Jesus this morning. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. It is I who is working and directing and orchestrating your life. I have you where you are. Jesus wants your heart. Take heart, he says. Trust me, believe my promises. Jesus wants your heart, not because he's needy. Jesus wants your heart, not because he's insecure. Not because he needs your approval. Jesus wants your heart because he made you and he knows you and he knows how lost humanity is and he knows how sin will deceive our hearts and then our hearts will become hardened and will become angry with him. So he wants your heart because he knows that he alone can satisfy you. And he wants your heart because he doesn't want you to live in fear. He doesn't want you to live just hoping somehow with fingers crossed that God will come through for you. He wants you to believe with your heart. And when you don't and you're gripped with fear, still he comes and he says gently, take heart. He doesn't say it in a condescending way. He doesn't say it with disgust in his voice. He doesn't say it with frustration. Take heart. I mean, come on. Take heart. It's I. Don't be afraid. Hello. He doesn't say it that way. Take heart. It's me, the good shepherd. Don't be afraid. He knows that you are a sinner. And so he says to you, as the good shepherd, as one of his lost sheep, take heart. It's me. I'm here. Don't be afraid. I've got everything under control. Everything is going according to my plans. You can trust me. 
when we live in fear and when we are not trusting our Heavenly Father, we begin to turn ourselves into orphans. When we live in fear and we're not trusting that our Heavenly Father has our best interests in mind and working in our life to bring Him glory and to bring us good, when we live in fear and we don't believe that, what we actually do is we begin turning ourselves into orphans. And that's the disciples here. It's what they're doing, and we all do this. We begin to slip so easily back into our built-in orphan mentality, and we forget that we are sons who have a Heavenly Father who loves and cares for us, even though He sends us into a storm. We forget that we are sons and daughters who have a Heavenly Father who loves us and cares for us even when he sends us into a storm. So here's how you can tell if you are functioning as an orphan, if any of these things are true of you. You feel alone. You're anxious over needs, money, health, relationships. Or you feel condemned and guilty all the time. Or you're defensive. Or you want to be right. Or you live in the fear of man. You try so hard to please everybody. You just want them to like me. It's being an orphan. Or you're unable to tolerate criticism. Or you compare yourself with others. Or you're ungrateful. Or you complain. Or you're bitter. Or you're angry with God. When we, things don't go our way, we can easily fall into this orphan mentality and start believing lies. Start believing that our Heavenly Father doesn't care. And that's the disciples here. They have rowed all night and Jesus finally helps them around 3.30, 4 a.m. And the disciples are learning a lesson that to follow Jesus means that you go by his watch. You go by his day planner. You go by his calendar. Jesus always shows up in your life on time. He always checks his watch and when he shows up, he is never late. To follow Jesus is to hand over your watch, hand over your day planner, hand over your calendar. To follow Jesus is to take your watch off and say, I don't need this anymore because I trust you. Here's my day planner, here's my calendar, I'm following you. Take up your watch and follow me is what Jesus says. Take up your watch and follow me. Take up your calendar and follow me. Take up your clock and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. Think about this. Jesus is being very intentional about helping the disciples see their unbelief. That's what's happening here. First, he tells the disciples to get in the boat and to go on without him. Then he goes up on a mountain to pray and spends several hours praying while keeping an eye on the disciples and ensuring that they will be placed in this difficult storm on the, sea, on the sea at this moment. But then, when Jesus finally appears to them, they fail to see Jesus for who he really is, and instead, they think he's a ghost. Instead of crying out, God, they cry out, ghost. Instead of crying out, God incarnate, they cry out, ghost incoming. Understand this, Grace. 
Jesus is nothing if not determined to put us in situations where our own resources, our own efforts, our own strength, and our own wisdom are insufficient. Let me say that again. Jesus is nothing if not determined to put us in situations, often situations that we don't like, where our own resources and our own efforts and our own strength and our own wisdom are insufficient. Jesus was watching the disciples as they rode and rode and rode in the storm. He probably heard what Peter said. You can only imagine what Peter said. Those cuss words are still hovering over the Sea of Galilee to this day, probably. Jesus was very aware of what was going on. He wasn't unaware of their circumstances. He was very aware. In fact, he very intentionally put them in a place where their reliance on him was the only thing they could do. Jesus sent them ahead knowing that they would get stuck so they could once again learn that they were like desperate little children. Jesus knew that the lesson from the feeding of the 5,000 people still had not sunk in. Jesus knew that they didn't grasp what he was trying to say to them through the loaves and fishes, namely that he loves them and will not abandon them to their own resources because he's the good shepherd of Psalm 23. Listen, Jesus is smarter than you. That probably hurts to hear, right? Jesus is smarter than you. Jesus is smarter than me. He knows better than we do. He knows that we always instinctively choose to rely on our own strengths, our own gifts, our own wisdom, and our own resources. And so he intentionally sends us to places, takes us to places that we wouldn't choose in order to remind us that we need him. Because listen, if life was easy, we would not be desperate and needy for Jesus. We would go about our day, zippity-doo-dah, everything is well. And Jesus knows that, and if you're honest and I'm honest, we know that too. If life was easy and we got what we wanted, we probably wouldn't cry out to Jesus. He intentionally sends us to places, takes us to places that we wouldn't choose in order to remind us that we need him. Paul Tripp says, So God, in the grandeur and glory of his relentless love, will boil you. Here's the principle. God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. You know what that's called? Grace. God knows how sturdy our self-righteousness is. He knows how reliant we are on our own strength and wisdom. He knows how attracted we are to the things of the world. He knows how easily satisfied we are, thinking we're grace graduates when we're not. He knows how much we're able to shift the blame and make excuses, how much we're able to swindle ourselves. And so, in grace... He will take us beyond our wisdom, beyond our strength, beyond our plan, beyond our righteousness to places we would not have ever chosen to go so that we do the thing that we desperately need to do. We reach out with hands of helplessness and hope and say, I need your grace because grace is only for the broken. 
Grace is only for the weak. Grace is only for the poor. Grace is only for the disease. Grace is only for sinners. And unless you're there, you don't desire grace. We know this is true, right, Grace? That God will take us to these places to produce it. We do this with our children, don't we? What do we tell them? You have to eat your veggies. You cannot survive on french fries for the rest of your life. You have to eat veggies because the veggies are going to produce something in you that you cannot achieve on your own so that you can grow. You have to clean your room, okay, so that it will produce a work ethic in you so that when you grow up, you won't scoff at work and, and hard work and discipline. We do this with our kids all the time. You have to go to bed because your body needs rest because your body is going to do something with you, inside of you, while you're resting that you could not achieve on your own by staying up all night. We do this with our kids all the time. And we're God's kids. And God does that in our lives as well. And when we reach that place where we see once again that Jesus is the answer, that his promises are sufficient and trustworthy, and we collapse on him in faith, that's when we get the rest that we so desperately desire. When we go through trials and we go through suffering that we would not choose, God is not ignoring us. God is not abandoning us. Rather, he is actually giving us Yet again, the best gift a father can give. The rest that comes from relying and depending on him instead of ourselves. Trials and suffering are designed to lead you to a place of being reminded yet again that you are not in control, only Jesus is. Trials and sufferings and hardship are designed to lead you and I to a place of being reminded yet again, we're not in control, only Jesus is. And when you get to that place of rest and you get to that place of trust again, it's then that you see that it is a gift from your heavenly Father. He rescues us from our built-in orphan mentality where we start thinking he doesn't care. He's not answering. He's not responding. He doesn't care. That's the disciples here. Their hearts were hardened, and instead of seeing that they were desperate and Jesus was sufficient, their hearts became hardened. For them and for us as well, we may begin to believe the lie that dependence is a harsh requirement, but it's not. It's actually very freeing. It's a gift. Dependence is not the harsh requirement of a stern, uncaring, distant father, as our hearts often suppose. Dependence is actually one of the greatest gifts that God gives us. Dependence is his way of helping us see that his promises are true. Dependence is his way of helping us see that he is a good father. Dependence is his way of helping us see that we aren't orphans, we are sons. We, of course, don't like being dependent because it reveals how little we believe that God is enough. Being dependent reveals how often we all look to a million other things to make us secure, happy, safe, or fulfilled. In other words, dependence reveals the idols of our hearts. When there are times that you don't understand what God is doing in your life, one thing you can be certain of, he is exposing the idols of your heart. That's not all that he's doing in your life, 
but it's one of many. Like the disciples, you won't always understand what Jesus is doing, but you can always trust him. You can always take heart that he is doing something. Ray Ortland says, in the Bible, God is saying, you won't always understand me, but you can always trust me. If I surprise you with trouble, I will also surprise you with the joy I'll bring out of that trouble. You may struggle to believe that right now, but what seems so impossible is the very thing I specialize in. When God surprises you so that you can't see through what God is doing in your life into the reason behind it, when he becomes opaque and mysterious, you are seeing something. You are seeing that God is God and you are not God. You are encountering him at a new level of profundity. You are discovering what it means to trust God and surrender to God rather than control him. If God never shocked you, you wouldn't really know him because you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between your notions of God and the reality of God. What's God doing in your life right now that you don't understand what he's up to? Where are you trying to control him? Where has he surprised you with suffering, surprised you with difficulty, surprised you with a difficult person? And you have no idea how any good can come out of it. Where do you need to hear Jesus say, take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. What's happening in your life where you need Jesus to pass by and approach you and say, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. What's got you fearful, scared, frantic? Where are you slipping back into that built-in orphan mentality? Jesus is saying those words to you right now. And if you have a Bible where his words are in red ink, then you can see how his words stand out in this paragraph. Focus on those words. Those words are for you. The big takeaway from this sermon are those red words. Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. The most God-honoring thing you can do after being exposed to this passage is to say, I believe. And if you're struggling to believe like I often do, then just steal the prayer from that father in Mark 9, 24. Because I don't think he would mind. And I don't think it's trademarked or copywritten. So steal that father's prayer in Mark 9, 24 and say, I believe. Help my unbelief. And then hightail it to Jesus. And that's exactly what the crowd of 5,000 plus people did when Jesus went back on shore where they started. Look at verse 53. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. I think the disciples were headed to Bethsaida, never quite made it, and then they turned around when Jesus got back in the boat and landed where they started off, where Jesus had fed the 5,000. There's debates about this. You can look that up on your own. But I think that's why the people immediately recognized Jesus. Notice the contrast here. The disciples in verse 49, they saw him. They thought it was a ghost. They cried out. They saw him and were terrified. And then the crowd in verse 54, the people immediately recognized him and ran about. Jesus had just fed the 5,000 the evening before. So when they come back on shore, the people recognize Jesus and they begin bringing all the sick and hurting to him. And just like the woman with the issue of blood in Mark 5, people were healed when they just touched the fringe of his garment. I think Mark puts these together because he's giving us a picture of the life of disciple, 
of a disciple. There are times when we don't get it. Times when we're in the boat like the disciples and we're rowing and rowing and rowing and going nowhere. And we wonder why. Why am I still in this situation? I'm rowing and rowing and trying to get out. And God has you where he has you. And there are times when our hearts harden. Times when we get angry with God. Times when we're bitter. Times when we feel that we've become abandoned orphans. And Jesus comes to us in those moments and he speaks tenderly without condemnation and he very gently says, take heart. And then there are times when like these people in verses 53 to 56, when we do get it, those times are often rare, I would assume, and we just run to Jesus because we know that we're desperate and we know that he's sufficient. There are times when we know that we are sons, times when we just want to touch the fringe of his garment and all will be made well. Mark is telling us that Jesus wants us to realize just how desperate we are and then run to him. Mark is telling us that Jesus loves desperate people. He welcomes desperate people into his presence. Paul Miller says, Prayer is asking God to incarnate to get dirty in your life. Yes, the eternal God scrubs floors. For sure, we know he washes feet. So take Jesus at his word. Ask him. Tell him what you want. Get dirty. Write out your prayer request. Don't mindlessly drift through life on the American narcotic of busyness. If you try to seize the day, the day will eventually break you. Seize the corner of his garment and don't let go until he blesses you. He will reshape the day. God also cheers when we come to him with our wobbling, unsteady prayers. Jesus does not say, come to me, all you who have learned how to concentrate in prayer, whose minds no longer wander, and I will give you rest. Listen, Grace, Jesus is looking for scared people. He's looking for confused people. He's looking for overwhelmed people. He's looking for damaged people. He welcomes the sick and hurting. He wants all of your sin to meet all of his forgiveness. That's why he came. It's why he lived. It's why he died. It's why he came back from the dead. He wants you to come to the end of yourself so that you will discover that his grace is sufficient. Jesus wants to get dirty in your life. He'll scrub floors. He'll wash feet. He cheers when you bring your wobbling, unsteady prayers. And when you bring all the mess of your life and all the drama and all of your sin and all of your rebellion and all of your idols and all of your anger and all of your bitterness, all of your heart, Jesus will say to you, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Take heart, Christian. You are not an orphan. You have not been abandoned by your heavenly Father. It may seem like you have been, but you have not. You may not understand why what is happening in your life is happening, but you can trust him. You may not be getting all of your prayers answered the way you want, but you can trust your heavenly Father. After all, he gave his son for you and for your sin. As Paul reminds us in Romans 8, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he gave you his son when you were a sinner, when you were a rebel, when you were an enemy and you hated him, and when you were in desperate need of a savior, then how will he not graciously give you all that he believes that you need? Take heart, friends. Take heart. And if you're like me, 
and you know that God is sovereign, and you know he's working for your good, and you believe it, but then you get bitter and angry because circumstances don't change. And then you recommit, and you tell yourself, God is sovereign, he's working, I am where I am, where he has me, and the circumstances don't change, and things don't change, and you blow it and begin thinking otherwise, and then you recalibrate and do it all over again. If that's you, because that's me, because I do this cycle all the time, that's you, Jesus still says, come, take heart, it is I. He's not disgusted with you, Christian. When you believe and you don't believe, you believe and you don't believe, you are his child. He loves you just like he loves his son, Jesus. Rest in that today. Heavenly Father, we admit that we're just like the disciples. We're all over the place. We believe one minute we don't believe in the next. We get bitter. We get angry. Our hearts become hardened. We repent. And we believe. And we just do the cycle over and over again. And that's why it's good news that Jesus came to live the life we could never live and to die the death that we all deserve. And he raised him from the dead. And that's our hope. Help us, Father. There are people here today who are in very difficult situations and they want their circumstances to change and things haven't and they're about to become very bitter and angry and their hearts are going to be hardened and there are people in those situations and they are angry and bitter and their heart is hardened. God have mercy on all of us. Forgive us and help us to believe your son's words. Do this for your glory and do this for our joy and our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.